Right, I'm told we can start. Um, so, hello everyone, um, and hello everyone on the podcast. Um, this week we're going to do deductive validity. Um, so, last week we looked at all these things. Have a quick look and remind yourself, because we're about to do a, a quick revision, as usual. So, remind yourself what we did. And then I'll ask you some questions. Enough of a reminder? Okay. Um, who can tell me what it is for an argument to be truth-preserving? Can anyone tell me what it is for an argument to be truth-preserving? I think I might have to give up these little revision <laughs> sessions. <laughs> the conclusion follows from the premises, certainly, but um, that's not sufficient for an argument to be truth-preserving because that's true in inductive arguments as well as deductive arguments. And it's only good deductive arguments that are truth-preserving. Oh, I was going to say, it can only be that conclusion um, following on from those premises. There is no option. There's no option. Um, the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. Good. If the premises are true, the conclusion must be true. So I see what you mean about no option. But um, <laughs> Yes, that, that, was, that was canonical. That was very good. Um, okay, an argument is truth preserving if there is no logically possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false. So if the premise is true, the conclusion must be true. The logic says it must be true. There's no, no option, as you put it. Um, that's what it is for a, a, an argument to be truth preserving. Um, do all deductive arguments preserve the truth? Which ones don't? The bad ones, exactly so. It's only good deductive arguments that preserve the truth. Bad ones, um, let's see, do we ask this? No, okay. Um, what do bad, the premises of a bad deductive argument tell us about the conclusion? Can anyone tell me that? What do the premises of a bad deductive argument tell us about the conclusion? False. Wrong. It may not be true. Hang on. False. Wrong. <laughs> Gone. Have another game. <laughs> the conclusion doesn't necessarily uh, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises at all. The, the premises of a bad deductive argument are no reason whatsoever to believe the conclusion. That doesn't mean that the conclusion is false. The conclusion of a bad deductive argument can be true, as we'll see later today. Um, and if by wrong you meant false, the same thing applies. Um, why aren't inductive arguments truth-preserving? Can anyone tell me? Because they can generate another truth. Um, I'm not sure quite what you mean by they can generate another truth. They're not preserving the truth, they can produce one. No, um, that makes inductive arguments sound as if they can generate truth. Um, and as a matter of fact, no, that's, that's not the case. Is that matters of degree? Um, it's, that, that's not why. Actually. Inductive arguments are not truth-preserving because it's always possible for the premise to be true and the conclusion false in an inductive argument, even the strongest inductive argument. Do you remember I said in, um, in the history of the universe the sun has risen every single day, therefore the sun will rise tomorrow? 
That's a very strong inductive argument. But, I mean, the sun might blow up tonight. We, we can't be certain that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Um, and logic has nothing to say about whether the sun is going to arise tomorrow just because it's arisen. Arisen. I've been singing the Messiah. <laughs> just because it's risen every single day in the history of the universe. Okay, um, what is it for an argument to be monotonic? A prize for anyone who can answer this. Gentleman down there. Um, there Sorry, that's not fair. I'm picking on you, but that's only because you've got every other answer there's, right. There's uh, no possible... Uh, I'll have to yeah, bad start. <laughs> can anyone remember? The, the answer is yes or no. Uh, there's no question of degree. Um, Yes, you're right. Um, deductive arguments, well done, are monotonic, which means that um, they're conclusive. You can add anything you like to a good in deductive argument and you won't make it bad. And you can add anything you like to a bad deductive argument and you won't make it good. Whereas with an inductive argument, you can add premises and change a strong argument into a weak one and a weak argument into a strong one. Um, go on. Last week, um, what, what we did is we had a very strong um, deductive argument in which you then added a premise which contradicted one of the premises. That's right. right. And I really struggled with, um, once you negated the other premise, that actually it didn't... Why does that remain a good argument? Exactly. Yeah. If everybody else got it, then fine. But no, I, I think I'm going to answer that question later on today. Okay. So um, if I don't answer it by the end of today, perhaps you'll come back and ask me again. Sure. Okay. Um, why is it always a matter of degree um, whether an inductive argument is good or bad? No? I'm embarrassing you, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Okay, um, it, that's because inductive arguments are not monotonic. You can always add something and, and you change whether they're good or bad. So they're either strong or weak. So if, in, whereas deduction is an either or situation, induction is a matter of, it's either strong or weak, which is a matter of degree rather than either or. Um, Okay, we'll go through the others quickly. Uh, what's the difference between a priori and a posteriori knowledge? Does anyone know? Well, that's knowledge that you have now, knowledge that you may have in the future. Um, not <laughs> quite, but I see where you're going. A priori is knowledge you... Go on. Knowledge you have before having evidence or experience. Good. A priori is knowledge you have just from the... So if I ask you whether there are any uh, married bachelors, you don't have to leave your seat to tell me that there aren't. Similarly, if I say, are there any um, two-sided triangles, you don't have to leave your seat to tell me that there aren't. This is a priori knowledge. It's knowledge that you have without experience, knowledge you have just in virtue of grasping the concepts that I'm using. And a posteriori knowledge is the opposite. You have to have experience. It's background knowledge about the world. Um, it's possible to evaluate deductive arguments a priori because they're valid in virtue, though they're good or bad, in virtue of their form and the logical words. Do you remember we reduced an argument to if P then Q, P therefore Q. And it's the if then um, and the therefore that tells us 
whether the argument's good or bad. We don't need to know anything about background knowledge. Whereas with the inductive arguments, as you'll see next week, we always have to know about the background knowledge um, of what we're talking about, of the content of the argument. Whereas deduction is topic neutral. Um, oh, I've just told you the answer to the last one. <laughs> I, could, I could have asked you that and you could have had a quick win. Right, okay, that's a quick bit of revision from last week. Any quick questions on that before we move on to today? Could you just tell me again, please, why inductive arguments aren't truth-preserving? Why inductive arguments aren't truth-preserving? Okay, well, to be truth-preserving is to be such that if the premise is true, the conclusion must be true. There's no logically possible situation in which the premise is true and the conclusion false. And an inductive argument is never like that because it relies on something called the, the um, principle of the uniformity of nature. We're always assuming in an, making an inductive argument that the future is going to be like the past. Um, and logic says nothing about that. I mean, logic couldn't care less whether the future is like the past. Um, so it never guarantees truth, um, an inductive argument. Um, even the strongest inductive argument, um, you never get a guarantee. Okay, um, we'll be looking at the evaluation of induction next week, so we'll learn a lot more about it then. Okay, um, so where we are now, this is the fourth lecture, we know what arguments are. We know how to analyse them and set them out logic book style. And we know the key characteristics of deductive and inductive arguments, and those exhaust the type of arguments that there are. Um, there's some disagreement about that. Some people think that abductive arguments uh, are another category. I'll discuss those a bit next week, but um, I'm classifying arguments in such a way that there are only two categories. Um, so this week we're going to learn how to evaluate deductive arguments. And this is the bit that in a way you've all been waiting for um, because you've been dying to come in and tell me that that premise is false or this uh, conclusion doesn't follow or something like that. And this is great because what it shows is that you're all rational animals. You all know a good argument when you see one and you know a bad argument when you see one. And what we're going to learn here is what you know when you know that. Um, so now we really can talk about true premises and conclusions and so on, and, and the impact of that. Incidentally, just before I move on, those of you who noticed the fact that I had the litmus paper turning acidic things blue last week rather than red, you're absolutely right. I had several emails, lots of people told me, and the, you're quite right, of course, it turns litmus paper red. Um, and actually, I do know that, <laughs> but I don't know what happened. Um, I didn't notice. Uh, so I do apologise, especially to the chemists amongst you. Right, when a deductive argument is good, it's valid, and its premises entail its conclusion. So this is just a bit of terminology for you. Um, a deductive argument is valid, uh, sorry, when it's good, it's valid, um, and its premises entail the conclusion. So the relation of entailment is the relation between the premises and the conclusion of a valid deductive argument. And when a deductive argument is bad, it's invalid. So these are technical terms for logicians, uh, and indeed for philosophers generally. Um, you probably use the word valid as a, as a sort of general feel-good term. Um, and with that in mind, you tend to confuse validity and truth 
Um, because truth is also a feel-good term, isn't it? We want things to be true, we want things to be valid. And so we tend to think that they're the same sort of thing. Well, I, I hope today I'll get you out of thinking that. It's very important that you stop thinking that as quickly as possible. But I'll remind you of it several times today. Okay, so deductive argument, when it's good, is valid. When it preserves the truth, it's valid, and its premises entail its conclusion. Um, a deductive argument is valid, and its premises entail its conclusion. When and only when there's no logically possible situation in which its premises are true and its conclusion false. In other words, when and only when it's truth-preserving, in the language we learned last week. And a deductive argument is invalid whenever its premises fail to entail its conclusion. And that's whenever there's a logically possible situation in which its premises are true and its conclusion false. I'm going over this terminology because when at home you're looking at your notes, you really need to learn these definitions. The definitions are very important. You can't learn logic properly without learning these definitions. Um, so if you think vaguely you're English, therefore you know what valid means, um, you're going to go wrong almost straight away, I promise you. So do try and learn these definitions. Um, one way to determine whether deductive arguments are valid is simply to learn which argument forms are always valid and which argument forms are never val valid. So here you are. Here's some argument forms that are always valid. Uh, modus ponens is if P then Q, P therefore Q. Modus tollens is if P then Q, not Q, therefore not P. Um, and so on. Um, you can see all these. And here are some argument forms that are never valid. So if P then Q, not P, therefore not Q. Do you want to have a quick look at those at the moment and see, see if you can see why they're not valid or they are valid? And don't fear, I'm not going to make you learn them. I think that's the most boring way ever. Anyone have any questions about wh why those are valid and those are invalid? <coughs> no? Okay, good. Um, well, so that's one way of evaluating um, deductive arguments is to know whether the form is a valid one or not. They can also be evaluated by means of truth tables. Uh, and I've got a truth table here, or tableau. I haven't got a tableau, um, but I could easily do one for you. Um, in fact, maybe I will just show you. Um, OK, this looks like double Dutch. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, I had the most awful trouble with two truth tables because the person teaching it didn't explain what was going on. Sorry, Mark if you're listening. <laughs> um, but what we've got here is a, a representation, if you like, of the truth conditions of both of the sentences that constitute the argument and the impact of combining them in the way that we have. So this, each of these is a row. We're not going to, I'm not going to make you, well, I am going to make you do one, actually, so you may as well listen, but I'm not then going to ask you to rely on it. Each of these is a different row, and each row 
represents a different possible world or a different possible situation. So if we forget everything from this line that way for the moment, just look at these. This is the world in which Q is true and P is true, okay? And this is the world in which P is true and Q is false. And this is the world in which, tell me? P is false. You've got the idea. And this is the world in which both P and Q are false. Now, you'll see that as we've got two, and we assume bivalence when we're doing logic, bivalence is that every sentence has a truth value, um, so there are no... Um, sentences that don't have truth values and there are only two truth values true and false so a sentence can't be neither true nor false nor can it be anything other than true or false given that there are only four possible combinations here aren't there and these are the four <coughs> once you've got that um you only need to know what the import for truth is of the logical words if and then and I'm afraid you'll just have to take it from me that that's what it is. So that's the truth table definition of if P then Q. P, you'll see, has exactly the truth values here that it has here. Because if that's a world where P is true, then P's got to be true there, hasn't it? Um, and if that's a world where Q is false, then Q's got to be false there. So those two lines are exactly what comes from there. Now, you ask yourself, is this argument truth-preserving? In other words, is there any possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false? Well, here's a situation where both premises are true, but the conclusion is true. Okay, so that's truth-preserving. Um, here's a situation where it's not the case that both premises are true, so actually we don't even need to look at the <coughs> and the same here, and the same here. So do you see that in every possible, logically possible situation where the premises are both true, the conclusion is also true. And as this truth table exhausts all possible worlds, we know that there is no logically possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false. So that's a truth table test for a deductive argument. Okay, I'm just going to make you do one for fun. I think I am anyway. Yes, I am. Thought so. Um, okay, let's um, ignore everything down from here to here just for the moment. Um, ah, now I shouldn't have filled this in. <laughs> Let me s no, it's just going to be on my head then, isn't it? Okay, if P is true and Q is true, What's the truth value of P and Q? True. Did you know that just from that? Yes. But you know that anyway, don't you? If P is true and Q is true, it, it has to be true, doesn't it? What about if P is false and uh, Q is true? No, sorry, P is true and Q is false. 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 And what about that way? False. And that one. False. Do you see where you get the truth value of P and Q yes. from these truth values here? So that's where those come from. And where does this come from? It's P. It's just from the... the that's right, because that's true, true, false, false, and this is true, true, false, false. Where does this come from? 
Q. Q. True, false, true, false, same as over there. So, is this a good argument or not? Um, tell me whether to put a tick or just a dash here. Oh, no, it's all false. Tick or a dash? It's a dash, you're right. Why do you say that? Because it's all false. No, that's not why you put a dash, sorry. Um, because that might be true, as it is here. Oh, I see. Do you see? What do you put here? A tick or a dash? It's a dash. I've virtually told you that just now, haven't I? Okay, what about here? That's a tick, yes. I won't tick the screen because I'll be in trouble. Um, but yes, what the, um, so what we've got here is a, an argument, the, the deductive argument with the premises on this side of this turnstile here, that's what it's called, and the conclusion on the other side. And what we're looking for is a situation where all the premises are true and the conclusion false. And if we can find that, we put a cross there. And it's not a valid argument. But in this one, both, the only possible world in which both the premises are true is also a possible world in which the conclusion is true. Do you see how truth tables work? Mm -hmm. um, as I say, we're, we're not going to do those. We'll, uh, I'll probably do them in another logic weekend next year or something. So keep an eye out for that if you're just dying to do more <laughs> truth tables. Uh, and Tableau, of course, you haven't met the joys of Tableau yet. Yeah. Could you just put some words onto an example for the first three columns? Um, the first three columns? Yes. Uh, well, yes, I could make P, uh, it's Monday, and Q is Marianne's wearing jeans. Um, oh, no, that's, that won't do. I, I, I'm sorry, I find it very difficult to think off the top of my head of an example. If I go back to the previous one, I can give you the example that I just had. Um, if it's Monday, then Marianne's wearing jeans. It is Monday, therefore Marianne's wearing jeans. What's P and Q then? So P is, it's Monday, and Q is, Marianne's wearing jeans. Thank you. So if it's Monday, then Marianne's wearing jeans. It is Monday, therefore Marianne's wearing jeans. Yeah. Okay? Thank you. Um, and uh, it would be very easy to think of one for that, but I'm afraid when I'm in the middle of a lecture, it's quite difficult to stop and think, oddly enough, but it is. <laughs> okay, now both those methods uh, involve learning a little bit about how to formalise arguments. We've used P and Q and so on. Um, and what we're doing is we're eliminating the English and replacing it with symbols. Um, but what we're doing here is informal rather than formal logic. So you don't have to learn either of those systems. Um, instead, we're going to learn the best way to evaluate a deductive argument informally is firstly to set it up logic book style. We know how to do that. Secondly, to construct the counterexample set um, and thirdly, to ask whether the sentences of the counterexample set are consistent. So this is what we are going to learn. So you know how to do that. You know how to identify the premises and the conclusion of an argument and set it out logic book style. So all you need to do is how to construct the counterexample set and how to ask whether the sentences of the counterexample set are consistent.
Okay, that's what we're going to do. The counterexample set consists in the premises of the argument plus the negation of its conclusion. Okay, so the premises, just as they always were, plus the negation of the conclusion. And a set of sentences is consistent, and this is another definition to take on board, if there's a logically possible situation in which all the sentences are true together. Notice a logically possible situation, not an actual situation, or even an empirically possible situation. A logically possible situation. Okay, those are the definitions. Now let's actually practice it. Right, on the left-hand side is an argument. Um, a good deductive argument, I think. Yes. Uh, and on the right-hand side is the counterexample set um, of this argument. Now, the counterexample set, you'll remember from the previous slide, is the premises of the argument plus the negation of the conclusion. Okay, so do you see, I have an argument here, um, Deepak is a banker, all bankers are rich, therefore Deepak is rich, so the therefore marks the conclusion. Here, I no longer have an argument, I have a counterexample set. Okay, a set of sentences, that's all it is, it's not an argument, because we're not saying that the conclusion follows from the premises here, we're just saying here are three sentences one of which is the negation of that conclusion. Do you see that? Yeah. I've just tacked the words, it is not the case that. Um, and very importantly, you can't negate the conclusion by saying Deepak is not <coughs> rich. <coughs> that doesn't negate the possibility that Deepak doesn't exist. Do you see what I mean? Whereas that does negate that possibility as well. So it negates everything. Um, that's the negation of the conclusion. So, do you see how to make a counterexample set? Okay, that's, that's not rocket science. Um, and here's another example and another counterexample set. Have a look at those and see if there's anything that. If you met somebody saying that, you'd just say, well, that's irrelevant because you've brought something new. This? Yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I wouldn't, at, at this point you're only halfway through how this is used to test an argument. So don't, remember, what we're trying to do now is learn a, a pretty mechanical way of testing an argument. So let's say that you found yourself, you've been reading the leader of your newspaper and you, you're really bothered about this issue. Who's going to win the next American election? I know you're all bothered about that. <laughs> um, and, and the newspaper gives you an argument for why it should be. I don't know, Mitt Romney or something like that. And you want to know what this argument is, because actually you would have gone for Obama, so why, is, why are they arguing that? But it's a very complicated... Um, so what you try... You identify the argument. Um, having got the argument, you still can't work out. It's still too complicated to work out how to do it. This gives you a completely mechanical way to test um, whether an argument is a good one or a bad one. Okay, so nobody's using that at the moment to test an argument. What we're, all we're doing at the moment is creating a counterexample set. We haven't gone in for any evaluation at the moment. You said that one should determine whether the example was uh, We haven't got to that yet. Yeah. Uh, so I said there are two things you've got to be able to do. The first one is create the counterexample set, 
And the second one is to decide whether it's consistent. All we're doing at the moment is creating the counterexample set. I'll look at consistency in a moment. Can, can you change that rule that then it is not the case set? Can you say, however, DPAC is not rich? It's not a banker, sorry. Uh, no. It's not the case set. Have you got to... No, you're, you're wanting to put however in there because you're yeah. wanting another argument. That's an argument. That isn't an argument. That's an argument. Mm -hmm. That's the counterexample set for the argument. Okay? So there's no howevers or therefores or anything in this one at all. And do you remember what I said about you've got to use it's not the case that Deepak is a banker rather than Deepak is not a banker? Um, because Deepak is not a banker isn't a negation of Deepak is a banker or rich or something. Mm. Oh, this is a bad one, isn't it? So that, okay. <coughs> um, okay, any questions about creating a counterexample set? You all look very tense and worried. <laughs> okay, let's all of you provide a counterexample set for. So, can taking this right down the middle of the room there, this side start at the top and this side start at the bottom. So from the bottom up and from the top up, um, just so that we get some chance of getting them all done. Can you see if you can find a counterexample set? Anyone willing to have a go at number one? Okay, we'll wait a bit longer till somebody else. Anyone willing to have a go at number four? Not yet, a bit well, longer. Number one? Is uh, not yet. Oh, well, uh, just wait till there's a sort of critical mass of people. Who <laughs> well, for number four, would you just say. I'm waiting until a few more people oh, okay. have, have been able to do it for themselves before we do it together. Is number three true? I'm sorry, that's an entirely personal question. Is it true? Number three is, a, is an argument, so it can't be true. No, I meant in the real world. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, number three is an argument, therefore in the real world it can't be true, or in, indeed in any world. Arguments are not true. If you mean, do you mean the premise? No, I, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Right, who's willing to have a go at number one? Oh, there were loads of you a minute ago. Um, is it Keith? Yes. Yeah. It's not the case of building court treaties. No, give me the whole, so premise one, oh, sorry, uh, sentence one. Uh, if anyone's caught cheating, they'll be sent down. If anyone is caught cheating, they'll be sent, sent down. down. Okay. Sentence two. Bill was sent down. And sentence three. Notice I'm doing sentences because, of course, if we're doing a counterexample, it is not an argument. It's just a set of sentences. Number the three. Bill must have been caught cheating. No. No, you're doing the counterexample here. It is the case. It is not the case. 
It is not the case that Bill has been cheating, or Bill must have been cheating. Good, that's the counterexample for that one. Okay, what about number four? Who's willing to try that? Uh, if Higgins was born in Bristol, then he's not Cockney. If Higgins was born in Bristol, then Higgins is not Cockney. Higgins is either Cockney or an impersonator. Higgins is either Cockney or an impersonator. It is not the case that Higgins was born in Bristol. And sentence three, it is not the case. Good, well done, that Higgins was born in Bristol. Good, so in each case there we've got um, the, sen the premises just as they were, so if you see those, those are exactly as they are there, and the conclusion exactly as it is, but with it is not the case that tacked on the front. Do you see that that's exactly what I've got for that one? And that's exactly what I've got for that one. Can you now do a counterexample for numbers two on that side of the room and number three on this side of the room? <coughs> Put up your hand when you've got one. Anyone got number three? Three. Hand, hand up so I can see. Good. Okay. Uh, right, number two. Anyone got a counterexample for number two? Christopher. Um, sorry, one of the. It, Damon Hurst does not follow rules and conventions, is the second one. No, I'm looking for the counter-example set at the moment. Yes, I'm saying the second sentence is that Damien Hurst does not, follows neither rules nor conventions. Um, no, can anyone give me the counter-example set? Um, go on. Uh, you want to write the whole thing now? Uh, not particularly, but I will do, <laughs> just because otherwise... Uh, go on, tell me what the whole thing is. In fact, read it out because it makes it easier it for me. It's not possible to access Hold on, you're going too fast. <laughs> Damon Hurst, because... It would be possible to assess the task only if we were following rules and conventions. Only if Damon Hurst was following rules and conventions. Good. Oh. No, no, I shan't do that again. <laughs> it is a fact that it follows rules and conventions. It is not the case that he follows neither rules nor conventions. It, just be like computers. <coughs> All you're doing is tacking, it is not the case that, on the front. Um, I, I, I see exactly what you're doing. You're thinking there's a double negation here, I'm going to get rid of it. But I don't want you to do that. Um, so it is not the case that he follows neither rules nor 
conventions. Okay, good. And number three. Yeah. Well, I haven't. No, but in analysing it. Yeah. It is not possible to assess the output during first period. Exactly. It would be possible to assess. Yes, you could do that. Yep, you could do that. Um, yes, because one, it, that is an and, isn't it? It's not possible to do this, and this is why. Yes. Could you argue that the first sentence is a conclusion? It is not possible to do this at the end Is that a conclusion? That, that was what I was trying yeah. to argue. Um, I think that, I mean, it seems to me that, that uh, hold on. You could say, therefore, it is not possible to assess the work of Damien Hirst. If I'm Hurst. trying to think, I can't do it. <laughs> um, I think you're right, actually. Um, it looks as if that's the conclusion, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. And that and that uh, are the premises. Yes, I wonder why I put that in like that. Can we? Well, <coughs> let, can we do that again, actually, because yeah. I think that's that's it's got rather confusing. So I'm going to make this two again, and let's do it as you rightly say there, because I think you're right. That's that is a much better analysis of that argument. So um, let's set it out logic book style first, and then provide the counter example, and then we can all see what we're doing. So logic book style, we want premise one, premise two, and the conclusion. And premise one is? It's impossible to assess, to assess the work of Damien Hirst only if he were following rules and conventions. I didn't leave myself enough room. Premise two. He follows neither rules. Damien Hurst follows neither rules nor conventions. And conclusion. Therefore, it is not possible to assess the art of Damien Hurst. Notice I'm getting rid of the. Do you remember we had to get rid of. of um, cross-references and things, and I'm doing that by putting Damien Hurst in rather than he. Okay, can we now have a counter-example of that? It is not the case that it's not possible to. <laughs> it is not the case that it is not possible to assess the work of Damien Hurst. Yes, but the thing is, if you try and get rid of the double negatives as you're doing it, you might introduce an error, and that's what I don't want you to do. I just want you to create the counterexample. You're right, I should probably have not used so many counter um, double negatives. Sentence one there is premise is the same as premise one. Sentence two there is the same as premise two. Okay, um, and now the one that you're interested in, number three. Um, okay, let me... Okay, that, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it, in terms of the arguments. 
Okay, let's have just a counter example then. <coughs> Uh, well, the counter example is the whole thing. So if you live alone or with someone who is mentally ill, you are treated as a single person uh, for council tax purposes. Uh, Jennifer pays council tax as a single person. Therefore, no, we don't want therefore because it's a council example. It is not the case that Jennifer lives alone or with a person who is mentally ill. Okay, to answer your question, which I think was, is that premise true? No, it honestly wasn't. I was being a bit cheeky. No, no, no. Because uh, I wanted to know if it's fact. This first premise mm. is true. Yes. It actually is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I was, when my mum, who had Alzheimer's, was living with mm. me, I was treated as a single person for <coughs> council tax purposes, and you oh, should be really? too if you're in the yeah. same yes. situation. <laughs> Um, so uh, just let me go back to though you asked is that true now that is an argument and it can't be true right. do you remember back in the first week I said sentences can be true or false but arguments can only be good or bad or valid or invalid or some or strong or weak um, so when you said is that true I you couldn't have meant the but I knew you meant one of the premises and it probably had to be that one um, but yes indeed that is true yeah. Okay, right. So we've got, have you got the idea of counterexamples? Yes. Okay, so all you're doing is negating the conclusion of the argument and setting out a set of sentences, the first, uh, which are the premise, a premise, premise, and the negation of the conclusion. That's the counterexample set. Um, <coughs> now that's funny, I wasn't expecting that. Nevertheless, that's what it is. Okay, what I was going to go on to say, and have clearly forgotten to put on the slides, is are these counterexample sets consistent? Um, because that's the next step. Until you've decided whether they're consistent or not, um, you haven't been able to determine whether the argument's a good one. Um, so, given that a set of sentences is consistent only when there is a possible situation when they're all true together, Let's have a look at each of these and see whether we can find such a situation. So, now you can't read my writing, can you? Interestingly enough, neither can I. <laughs> okay, um, if anyone is caught cheating, they'll be sent down. Bill was sent down. It is not the case that Bill must have been cheating. Okay, is that set of sentences consistent? Could they all be true together? Okay, can somebody give me a situation in which they could all be true together? He could have been sent down for another reason other than cheating. Yes, exactly. He could have been sent down for another reason. So those premises could be true 
and the negation of the conclusion could be true as well. What does that tell us? It tells us, yeah, there's some very interesting answers coming in here. <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask the question again, because I hoped in asking the question to make it clear what I was trying to get at. Um, the premises of this argument are, can be true together, and the negation of the, of the conclusion of the argument can be true at the same time as both of the premises are true. What does that tell us? It tells us that the set of sentences of the counterexample set is consistent, therefore it's a bad argument. It's an invalid argument. Remember, um, now I need someone to come up and hold a piece of paper for me. Don't all jump at once. <laughs> um, would you like to come up and hold a piece of paper for me? I'm tall enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need to be tall. Um, I used to tell my, my undergraduates that if they can't read my writing by the end of term, they were going to fail their exam. <laughs> Would you like to stand just a bit further over there? Because um, I think the lights... Can you read that? An argument... Well, I'll read it out to you. <laughs> An argument is valid... Actually, you might have to go... In fact, you might have to sit down and hold it up there so it's out of the light. Yeah. An argument is valid if and only if there is no logically possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false. Fair enough? Okay, so that's an argument is truth-preserving, i.e. valid, if it, if it matches those conditions, if it satisfies those conditions. Now, if you've got a counterexample set, what you've got is a set of sentences that is the premises and the, the negation of the conclusion, haven't you? So it's, it's as if we're saying, but what if this conclusion were false? Is there a possible situation in which the premises are true and this negation of the conclusion is also true? Because if there is, then it can't be valid, can it? Yeah. Do you see yeah. where I'm coming from? So um, where were we? So, are you testing the argument? Yeah, uh, that's, okay. exact, that's exactly what we're doing. Okay, yes, there we are. So, there's the counterexample set for argument one. Do you remember? If anyone is caught cheating, they'll be sent down. That's premise one on there. Bill was sent down. That's premise two. And we've negated the conclusion. Okay, so here we have the counterexample set. If this counterexample set is consistent, 
then it represents a possible situation in which the premises are true and so is the negation of the conclusion. In other words, a situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion is false. So if the counterexample set is consistent, then the argument is invalid. Okay? Do you see why you need to make the difference between truth and validity and consistency and so on? They, they all interact with possible worlds so that you've got the definition of... Are you all right there? Yeah. <laughs> you've got the definition of validity there. And in order to mechanically test whether an argument is a good one, all we have to do is negate the conclusion and just see if the set is consistent. And if we can think of a, of a situation in which all those three are, are true together, then we have a counterexample to the argument. Yeah. Mm. Do, do you see? Yes, clever. So shall we do another one? Thank you very much. That's, um, you can have that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so let, let's do another one. Um, OK. If Higgins was born in Bristol, then Higgins is not Cockney. Higgins is either Cockney or an impersonator. It's not the case that Higgins was born in Bristol. Uh, is that set consistent? <coughs> is there a possible situation <coughs> where all those sentences are true together? Yes. 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 OK, can anyone tell me what it is? Higgins is an imposter. He's an, or an impersonator, isn't it? Sorry? Not imposter, impersonator. Um, okay, he's an impersonator. That would make all those true, wouldn't it? Um, and immediately, we've not only, we not only know that our argument is bad, we also know why it's bad. We've got a counterexample to the argument, and we can say, no, that, that's not a good argument, because um, if Higgins is an impersonator, then um, Higgins wasn't born in Bristol. You know, your premises are true and yet your conclusion's false. Are you with me? Do you see how it works? And we'll just do the, the harder ones. Um, that's the one we messed up. Um, okay, so we're just... Uh, it would be possible to assess the work of Damien Hirst only if he were following rules and convention. Damien Hirst follows neither rules nor conventions, um, and it's not the case that it's not possible. Okay, we do want to get rid of that double negation, don't we? Uh, it is possible to assess the work of Damien Hirst. Okay, are those, could those all be true together? No, there's no not. It, it, is there? Hang on. Only if. Does that mean the same as it? No, there, there's an only if, but not an if and only if. An if and only if is different from an only if, because it's got an if and in front of it. Right. Yep. You can't get rid of both the negations, can you? <coughs> um, it, is, it is not the case that it is possible to assess the art of Damien Hirst. 
it's not the case that it's not possible to assess the work. It's not the case that it's not possible. So, I think if you say it's not the case that it's not possible to assess the work of Damien Hirst, that is the same as it is possible to assess the work of Damien Hirst, isn't it? Yes. So let me write these out again because actually, we, because we messed that up, because I messed that up. So, oh, whoops. So sentence, sentence one is, let me just write this out and then it would be possible, that diamond there just means possible, to assess the work of Damien Hurst only if he were following rules and conventions. Uh, sentence two is, Damien Hurst follows neither rules nor conventions, and the negation of the conclusion, having taken out the double negation, is it is possible to assess the work of Damien Hurst. Okay. So the question is, that's the counter-example set, and we're asking, is it consistent? No. No. And what do we know then? The counter-example set is inconsistent. In other words, there is no possible situation in which the premises and the negation of the conclusion are true together. So the argument is valid. That's right. So do you see that you've got to be careful of another hiccup here, because if the counterexample concept is inconsistent, then the argument is valid, okay? And if the counterexample set is consistent, then the argument is invalid, okay? So again, don't go consistency is good, validity is good, therefore a consistent counterexample set means a valid argument, because do you see that will get it wrong? Um, you'll get your possibilities in the wrong way. Was that a question? Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm struggling with that. I could see that that being the case if it was an if and only if. Well, it's not. <laughs> so why can't it be another case where you can assess the work of another way? Things, another way? Oh, okay. Let me just have a look. Yes, it's a necessary condition of assessing the work of Damien Hirst that he's following rules and conventions. But he doesn't follow rules and conventions. It doesn't say it's the only condition. Yeah, that's in yeah, No, but it does say it's a necessary condition. In this particular example... No, it isn't a necessary condition. In this particular example, what is the difference between saying it would be possible to assess his art only if you were following rules of convention. Or I say it would be possible to assess yourself if and only if you were following Okay. I, I'm, I think this is where I've been at it too long because <laughs> I know that people have huge problems with if and only if. Um, <laughs> so there's if, then, there's only if, and there's if and only if. Okay? Those, those are the three things that people tend to get confused. Let me just... Can you all see? Mm -hmm. um, so, if P then Q, P 
P only if Q and P if and only if Q. Um, so if we say if P then Q, we're saying that P is sufficient for Q, aren't we? You understand that? If we say P only if Q, we're saying that Q is necessary for P. Okay? And if we say P if and only if Q, we're saying uh, P is necessary and sufficient for Q. Yeah? So we're adding that to that and to get that. If I just go to the in terms, right? So it's, uh, if you went back to your previous, mm -hmm. obviously you're writing it again. It would be possible to assess the work of Dane in terms only if you were following the convention. That's mm -hmm. true. That's so that says it's a necessary condition of assessing the work of Damien Hirst, that he follows rules and conventions. Let me write that down, because I think that might... So it is a necessary condition. It is a necessary, that box just means necessary, condition of assessing the work of Damien Hirst that he follows rules and conventions. Is that right? Um, Damien Hurst doesn't follow rules and conventions. Uh, sorry, this is the counter-example set, isn't it? Um, well, no, it, it is possible to assess, isn't it? The, yeah. It is possible to assess the work of Damien Hurst. So if I just go straight to the bottom, is that you can assess Damien Hurst's work on another premise other than rules and conventions? No, but this says um, it doesn't matter what else might be, uh, what other way. This is, if it's a necessary condition that he follows rules and conventions, that means if he doesn't follow rules and conventions, it isn't possible to assess his work. So, and that's inconsistent with that. And that set is inconsistent. And that's why I asked the question about if and only if. But and do you... No, I don't. But perhaps we can take it offline. Because if, if the only way to assess it... Speak up a bit so people yeah. can hear. If, if that's why I thought it would be an if and only if. <coughs> is because if and only if... If it was an if, if and only if, 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 it would be... Yes. If it were an if and only if, then the argument might be okay. But it isn't an if and only if, and it's this argument we're evaluating, not a different argument that had an if and only if in it. Do you see what I mean? You, you absolutely mustn't, when you're um, analysing your argument to set it out logic book style, if that's the argument you want to analyse, you must analyse that argument not another argument that you think might work, um, because then you're just you're creating another argument. Do you see here? This isn't an if and only if; it's an only if. If it were an if and only if, um, then you'd have uh, it's a necessary and sufficient condition of assessing the work of uh, 
Actually, it still wouldn't. So no, it doesn't change it. It doesn't change it. Yeah. In this case. In this case. If and only if, and only if, are very different in other cases, though. You've got to be very careful. Okay, where are we? We haven't done... Um, so, that one's valid. That one's valid. No, that one's invalid. That one's invalid, and that one's valid. Is that right? And we haven't yet looked at the other one. Um, let's have a quick look at that. Do you see how if you, if you can get used to doing all this, you will think much more clearly than you ever have before? I mean, you'll make the difference immediately between ifs and only ifs and if and only ifs and so on. And you'll see how um, possible worlds interact with truth and with possible truth in such a way that it'll be really helpful for you. Um, here we are. If you live alone or with someone who's mentally ill, um, you are treated as a single purpose person for the purposes of council tax. Jennifer pays council tax as a single person. Uh, it's not the case that Jennifer lives alone or with a person who's mentally ill. Is that set consistent? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So half of you are saying yes and half of you are saying no. Put up your hand if you think yes, it's consistent. Sorry, sorry, put up your hand if you think no, it's inconsistent. Okay, give me the counter example then. Um, sorry, have I got that wrong? You think it's inconsistent, therefore it is. Okay, those of you who think it's consistent, give me the counter example. Uh, sorry, yes, that is the counterexample. What I mean is the counterexample to the argument. If those are consistent, then we have a counterexample to the argument, don't we? Are you with me? So what is that counterexample? So those who think that this set is consistent, they believe that there's a possible situation in which all of these are true together, if you tell me what that possible situation is, and it really is a possible situation, and we agree, then we will have found a counterexample to that argument. Okay? There are other reasons for being treated as a single person for the purposes of counterpacks other than, it doesn't say if and only if. Good. You're, you're absolutely right. The fact is, if you're treated as a single person for the purposes of council tax if you have red hair, as well as... Uh, being single or living with a person who's mentally ill, then if Jennifer red, has red hair, she could be being treated as a single person, couldn't she? And so we see that this counterexample set is consistent, i.e. there is a possible situation in which the sentences, the premises and the negation of the conclusion are all true together, so the argument is... Invalid. Invalid. Very good. Yeah, you've got it. Do you, it's, it's very tricky. But actually, once you understand how the concepts work in together, um, it's not tricky at all. It'll, it'll become very easy for you. Sorry. Everyone's come, come off my chair, therefore I've got nowhere to stand. Marion, just before we... I'm just yes? a question of terms. Mm -hmm. So a set of sentences like that is a counterexample? Um, a set of sentences like this is a counterexample set. And then the the situation in which those sentences are all true together. Yes, well done. Okay, sorry, let me make that clear. First you have the argument. 
Then you create the counterexample set by negating the conclusion of the argument. <coughs> then you ask yourself if, if there's a, set, a situation in which the sentences are consistent. And if there is, you have a counterexample to the argument. A situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false, and therefore the argument is invalid. Shall I say that again? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so here we have an argument. Um, let's, let's use this one. Here we have an argument. Um, somebody is uh, asserting this sentence on the grounds of these sentences, right? That's, that's what an argument is. Um, we want to know whether the argument is a good one or not. Okay, so we set it out logic book style. We identify the first premise and the second premise and the conclusion. Then we want to evaluate the argument. So we take the conclusion of the argument and we tap it is not the case at that on front of it and thereby making the counterexample set for the argument. We then stand back and say, okay, are the sentences of the counterexample set consistent? Could they all be true together? Is there a situation I can imagine in which they're all true together? And if there is, then you say what that situation is, and that is the situation in which that argument is invalid. Okay? Because what you've shown is that this argument is not truth-preserving. The premises can be true and the conclusion false. Because the premises can be true together with the negation of the conclusion. Therefore, the argument is not truth-preserving. I have that seems slightly long-winded to me. If you if you take example one, I would say if P then Q, and then it says Q therefore P, which on one of your earlier slides you've already shown is not a valid argument. Yep, you're absolutely right. One, another way of evaluating arguments is to determine the form. And, but what I want, to be, want you to be able to do is to go away from here and informally evaluate arguments that you come across. And, you know, it would be very nice if all the arguments you come across to have the form of modus ponens, which yes. is the one that you gave. But I'm afraid they won't have. No. Um, and, and uh, what's more, they won't be easy to put into P and Q form necessarily either, and you don't know how to do that. So I'm, what I'm doing is giving you a way that, you know, it's not going to be easy to start off with to learn how to apply this, but having learnt how to apply it, you can apply it to any deductive argument at all. Um, and it won't always be easy because, as you can see, sometimes it's quite difficult to see whether a set of sentences is consistent or not. Um, but, if you, it, but you've got a way of going into even the, the most complicated argument by doing this. Okay, let's... Um, that's a way of evaluating uh, whether or not a deductive argument is valid. And for a logician, it's a sufficient condition of a deductive argument's being good that it's valid. Um, so if we're logicians now, we know exactly which of the arguments on the previous <coughs> slide is a good argument and which isn't. Um, but in everyday life, we want more of a deductive argument um, than it's simply being valid before we count it as good. And let me illustrate that for you. Okay, are these arguments valid? 
and then send you away with your head spinning today. <laughs> Put up your hands if you think yes. Okay, let me tell you, they're both valid. Um, let me explain why. Um, a, uh, an argument is valid if there's no possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false. Um, in this one, there's no possible situation in which the conclusion is false, is there? Is there? <laughs> so how could there be a possible situation in which the premise is true and the conclusion false? Couldn't be, could there? <laughs> uh, that's irrelevant because what, what matters here is as there's no possible situation in which the conclusion is false, you know immediately it doesn't matter what the premise is, that there is no possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false. Do you see? And this one is the mirror image of that. If there's no possible situation in which the premises are true, then how could there be a possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false? There couldn't be. And therefore, both those arguments are valid. But they're not good, are they? I mean, nobody, nobody would be happy with an argument like that. And that's why an argument must have more than validity if it's going to be a good argument. Because I was curious, do you call something an argument if you just have a few Well, anything can be an argument. If you're making that claim, um, and actually any, a logician would make this claim quite often because we know that from a contradiction anything follows, you might say. Um, and that um, if something's a necessary truth, it follows from everything. So you could argue like that, you could use it, but you wouldn't use it with somebody who didn't know about, these are the paradoxes of entailment, they're called. Um, okay, those, those arguments are bad because of the paradoxes of entailment. Um, it, if a deductive argument has a contradictory premises, then it's always valid. And that's because there's no possibility of its premises being true, and therefore, no possibility of its premises being true and its conclusion false. Do you see why it's valid? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That it satisfies the definition. And this one, if an argument has a tautological conclusion, then it's always valid, again. Because there's no logical possibility of the conclusions being false, so no possibility either of its premises being true and its conclusion being false. And these are paradoxes because they're very irritating. Um, I mean, we would rather the definition of validity didn't generate paradoxes like this, but it's a bit like, I mean, whales, for example, are fish, aren't they? I mean, they're obviously fish, except they're not, they're mammals. Um, why are they mammals? Because they have live young. Um, it's an unfortunate thing that the way we define things, it turns out that mammals, that, sorry, that whales turn out to be mammals rather than fish. Well, we could just change all our definitions and so on, but actually, for, for all other purposes, the definitions work perfectly well. So it's exactly the same here. For, with this definition of validity that I've given you, we can make computers do all sorts of things, get to the moon, do all sorts of things, uh, let someone jump 
from a spaceship, goodness knows how many thousand feet or whatever it is. How far was it? Poor. Um, anyway, we, um, we like the definition, but can you see that, again, you've got to understand these definitions, because once you understand the definitions, you will see why the paradoxes of entailment are valid. Um, and they show us that validity isn't enough to make an argument good for everyday purposes. We also need the premises to be relevant to the conclusion. Yeah. So coming back to your question here, um, can you make anything an argument just by putting <coughs> therefore in front? The answer is it depends how you use it. Um, so, for example, um, anything, almost anything can be relevant to almost anything else given the right context. Um, and I think... Here's an answer. Um, the sea is salt is true, therefore Melbourne is in Australia. You, you might think that couldn't possibly be an argument. They're not relevant to each other. Well, let me say that, that we're in the middle of a game show, and we've been told that if the first sentence is true, then the second sentence is also true. First sentence happens to be the sea, so the sea is salt is true. Second sentence is Melbourne is Australia. We're very thick. We didn't know either of these things. So we look up the sea is salt, and we find, ah, the sea is salt is true, therefore Melbourne's in Australia. Do you see how it does become an argument? <laughs> and all I've done is, is created a context. So the thing about human beings is we can use arguments, we can use language in all sorts of ways. Almost anything can be relevant to almost anything else. Um, there's a type of logic called relevance logic that is uh, trying to work out the logic of when something is and isn't relevant. Um, fascinating stuff, but you really don't want to think about that right now. <laughs> um, context is very important in the evaluation of argument. If my sat-nav tells me to turn left one minute and then turn right the next, actually it probably is being inconsistent knowing my sat-nav, but um, anyway, it's not being inconsistent, is it? No. Um, because the context is different. And I've just put the definition of inconsistent in there. Um, they're inconsistent if the set can't all be true together. Uh, and actually, it's important that they can't all be false together. I should have put that in, but never mind. Um, we've built in context into the way we've talked about arguments. So if, if we mention Sue in one paragraph and Sue in the next paragraph, we're assuming that the context is such that the sue in, in each case is the same. So do you see we've built in context? Um, okay, if I say I'm hungry and you say I'm not hungry, there's no contradiction. I'm sorry, it's contradictory. That's neither true nor false. Um, so when you're evaluating an argument, you need to be aware of the context in which the argument is being used. Um, you almost certainly will be, because um, in informal logic, we very rarely take an argument out of its context. So that shouldn't be a problem for you. But in these lectures, we've been assuming that contexts are always constant. Um, another thing we need in addition to validity is soundness. Soundness is... Um, Okay, the fact that an argument is valid doesn't mean either that its premises must be true or that its conclusion must be true. Now, that's bothered some of you um, as we've gone through these lectures. You've said, but that's not true sometimes. And I've always said to you, but we're not at the moment, we're not evaluating arguments. Um, when we're evaluating arguments, the question of the truth of the premises becomes important. 
A valid argument can have false premises and a false conclusion. And here's an example. Do you see that that's valid? It's truth-preserving, isn't it? If that were true and that were true, then that would have to be true, wouldn't it? <laughs> so this is a valid argument, but the premises are false and the conclusion is false. And it's valid because if its premises were true, it would be logically impossible for its conclusion to be false. Okay? So truth-preserving doesn't mean that either the premises or the conclusion are actually true. And here's another one. A valid argument can have true, some true premises, some false premises, and a false conclusion. Have another look. Do you accept that that's valid? You do? And somebody say no? No, they're not prepared to admit it, even if they did. <laughs> okay, so um, that's again valid, because if the premises were both true, it would again be logically impossible for the conclusion to be false. So again, the argument preserves truth, even though you've got one... I think that's a true premise, um, but that's certainly a false premise, and that's a false premise too. Uh, sorry, a false conclusion. And finally, a valid argument can have false premises and a true conclusion. Have a look. Do you accept that that's valid? Yes. No? Okay. Um, it's valid because if that were true and that were true, that would have to be true, wouldn't it? Yes. Okay, so again, it's valid, but that's false. That's false, and that's true. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So, again, it's valid, because if its premises were true, then its conclusion would have to be true. This is where you distinguish truth-preservingness, or validity, from truth itself. Um, and if a deductive argument is invalid, this is going to always be because its premises don't entail its conclusion. Uh, i.e. because it doesn't preserve the truth, um, in that it's logically possible for its premises to be true and its conclusion false. And here's, um, okay, that doesn't mean an invalid argument must have false premises or a false conclusion. And here is an invalid argument with false premises and a true conclusion. I've got past the point of being able to tell this. <laughs> is, is that a, an invalid argument? Yes, yes. Uh, those could both be true and yet that false, right? Yes. And yet that's true, that's false, and that's false, uh, true. true. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and can you see why it's invalid? Despite the way it's truth conditions. And here's an invalid argument with true premises and a true conclusion. You accept that? You accept that both of the premises and the conclusion are true, yes. but that the argument does not preserve the truth? Yeah. Good. Okay. And here is a little table that will, might help you. So um, if an argument has true premises and true, sorry, true premises and true conclusion, it could be either valid or invalid. If it has false premises as a true conclusion, it could be either valid or invalid. 
Uh, if it's got true premises and a false conclusion, it must be invalid. That's why it's useful, um, because uh, um, validity preserves truth. You cannot have an argument that's valid and has true premises and a false conclusion. Um, ah, okay, let's see if you can do this. Got 10 minutes left. If an argument is invalid, it will have a false conclusion. Put your hand up if you think that's true. Put your hand up if you think it's not true. Well done, it's not true. Um, if an argument has true premises and a true conclusion, it will be valid? True. Not necessarily. No. <laughs> you see, you're confusing validity and truth again. You're thinking, oh, if it has true premises and a true conclusion, then it must be a good argument. Is, must it? No. No. Um, so you can have a valid, an argument that's got true premises and a true conclusion, and that is invalid. And it, just to prove that, we have one there, I think. True premises, true conclusion, and invalid. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, if the premises of an argument contradict each other, the argument will be invalid. True or false? False. False. It must be valid, mustn't it? Because this is one of the paradoxes of entailment. If the premises, contra if, if premises contradict each other, one must... Um, that's right, sorry, I thought I'd got it wrong then. But if the premises of the argument contradict each other, there is no possible situation in which the premises are true, and therefore there isn't any possible situation in which the premises are true and the conclusion false. So the argument must be valid. That's, that's a paradox. If you're having trouble understanding that, don't worry. It is difficult to, to make sense of that. But if you go over your notes later, I hope that should become clear to you. And finally, an argument if it's valid is valid if its premises are true and its conclusion false. No. Put your hand up if you think no. Good. Well done. Um, when you were doing your, I mean, I'm sure you will go home and pore over these until next week till we come together again. Um, these questions are very useful in testing your understanding of um, validity and truth and so on. Um, if we're interested in the truth of our conclusions as well as the validity of our arguments, and of course we're all interested in that, it's only logicians who are interested only in the validity of arguments, we want our arguments to be sound as well as valid. Um, and an argument is sound if it's valid and such that its premises are true. Um, given the nature of validity, the conclusion of such an argument is logically guaranteed to be true. Um, so here's a little table again. Um, if it has false premises and the argument is valid, it's unsound. If it's got true premises and it's an invalid argument, it's unsound. It's unsound if it's invalid and false premises. It's only sound if you've got true premises and a valid argument, because then the conclusion must be valid. So sound argument is what we're all looking for all the time. That's what we really want. So there are two questions you've got to ask of an argument if, if you want to know whether its conclusion is true, if you want to evaluate that argument. Is the argument valid 
and are the premises true? I mean, so all the um, to test this, you use counterexamples, sets, and whether it's consistent or not. <coughs> to test that, I'm afraid you've got to go out with your microscope and actually look at the world. We don't dirty our hands with things like that. <laughs> Um, so, though to a logician an argument's being valid suffices for its being good, in everyday life we also want the premises to be relevant to the conclusion and we want the premises to be true. But, what about this? Is this a good argument? Is it valid? Yes. 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 Well done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is valid. Um, the reason it's valid is how could it possibly be the case that that's true and that's false when they're exactly the same? Do you see? This is, this is a circular argument, and all circular arguments are valid. What's more, they're valid sound, and its premises couldn't be more relevant to the conclusion. Um, but it's still not a good argument, is it, in, in terms of how we would think of an argument, um, and because it's not in the slightest bit persuasive. Um, and yet, an, okay, so an argument is persuasive only if someone might accept the premises and yet deny the conclusion. I mean, that's why we want to use an argument, because, you know, you say not P, and I say, well, hang on, if you accept this and this, you've got to accept that P is true. So I, I'm assuming that you're accepting the premises and yet want to deny the conclusion. And if I can show the conclusion follows from the premises, then I've made my case. You, you have to accept my argument. Um, but nobody is going to accept the, conclu the, premise, the conclusion, the premise of all whales are mammals, and yet deny the conclusion all whales are mammals, are they? Um, the argument is circular. All circular arguments are valid and relevant, and many of them are sound. Um, but thanks to the monotonicity of validity, such arguments can be persuasive, because what all I need to do is just add in lots of other premises um, so that you don't notice that the conclusion is there amongst the premises. And because you are all, you may not think it right now, but you are all validity detectors. That's what, as rational animals, you are. You, you hear that the argument is valid, and you think, okay, that's a good argument. But actually, it's only valid because it was circular. And you've got the conclusion hidden in there amongst the premises. And what, the minute you've got a conclusion in there amongst the premises, it doesn't matter what you add to the argument, you won't stop it being valid, because deduction is mon monotonic, um, as we looked at last week. So, even if we're persuaded by circular arguments, we shouldn't be. Da-da-da-da. Um, so, in order to evaluate a deductive argument, we've got to ask the following questions. Is it valid? And that you test with counterexamples and so on. Is it sound? That's the one where you go take your microscope out and find out whether it's true, the premises. Are the premises relevant to its conclusion? And finally, is it circular? And here are your exercises to do at home. Um, and there you are, that's a list of what you've learned this week, if you're still able to keep your... <laughs> and I'm going to test you on it next week, so make sure you know. These are the questions I'm going to ask you next week. And that's it for today. Okay. <laughs>